Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Avinash, and I will be UMC today. Welcome to the Singapore Perspectives Conference 2022, organized by the Institute of Policy Studies. We are very pleased to have you here with us this afternoon. Before I begin, here are a few administrative announcements. For the question and answer sessions, please submit your questions on the online platform. You can do this at any time during the event. Kindly raise your questions in a constructive and respectful manner. We will be posting highlights of our discussions today on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. If you are doing the same on your social media accounts, please use our conference hashtag SP2022City. Today's program will begin with opening remarks by Dr. Wu Jinjie, research, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies. It will be followed by remarks by Ambassador Chan Heng-Chi, Ambassador at Large at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Professor at the Lee Kuan Yew Center for Innovative Cities at the Singapore University of Technology and Design, speeches by former Foreign Minister and visiting scholar at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, Mr. George Yeo, and Dr. Liu Taika, Chairman of Morrow Architects and Planners. The subsequent Q&A session with Mr. Yeo and Dr. Liu will be moderated by Ambassador Chan. We hope you will enjoy the program. May I now invite Dr. Wu Jintie, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies for the opening remarks. Dr. Wu, please. Thank you. Thank you, Avinash. Distinguished guests and speakers, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this pre-conference session of Singapore Perspectives 2022. The theme of this year's conference is City. Over the course of seven online forums and a hybrid conference day, we will cover a broad and diverse range of topics pertaining to Singapore as a city-state. These include economic development, cosmopolitanism, urban planning, environmental sustainability, and the new digital economy. We will hear from leading urban thinkers, policymakers, and experts on the challenges and opportunities that Singapore will face across all these diverse issue areas. In planning this conference, we drew very deeply from our for former foreign minister, S. Rajaratnam's vision for Singapore to be a global city. We hope to explore how Singapore can further actualize this vision to become a truly global city by expanding beyond our physical confines to embrace new and digitally enabled financial, economic, and social spaces. Through the discussions that will take place over the course of this conference, we hope to answer this key question. How can Singapore continue to succeed as a global city and the world's only functioning city-state? We will begin this journey with today's pre-conference session, which will provide a broad and historical perspective on cities, civilizations, and geopolitics. So without any further ado, may I now hand the time over to Ambassador Chan Heng Chi, who is the moderator for this session. Ambassador Chan, please. And good afternoon to all of you. You know, when Singapore became independent in 1965, we were not a sure thing. A city-state, nation-state, is not a proposition for success, but we have become a success. A city-state that beckons to the world. 
Now, you have heard of or read of uh, Shimon Peres saying and Yasser Arafat saying that Gaza should be the Singapore of the Middle East. And today, after the United Kingdom brexited, it says it wants London to be the Singapore on the Thames. We have succeeded, and we have succeeded fully in Mr. Rajaratnam's vision as a global city. But I think today, the word deglobalization is gaining some buzz, and it's something that is in the air. The question is, with the pandemic and changes in supply chain delivery, and with tensions between the United States and China, and talk of decoupling, and also doing just in case rather than just in time, the question is, how will cities and city-states thrive? The I IPS has selected, as is seen this year, Singapore as a city-state, and we have come full circle. And our panel today will provide the perspective, and we will set the stage for the larger discussion. We're asked to go a bit back in history. Now, cities is a word that provokes the imagination. When someone mentions cities, you will immediately think of Paris, New York, London, Shanghai, Singapore, Beijing, Dubai. In history, when we mention cities, we think of Mohenjo-daro and Harappa in today's Pakistan and in the Indus Valley, Akkad, Babylon, and Nineveh in the Mesopotamian, of the Mesopotamian civilization. Recently, I saw on the National Geographic channel the discovery of Shemo, a city in China, northern China, which was said to be flourishing 4,300 years ago. Sophisticated, rich, very rich, technology was there, and totally different iconography, and it's not like what one expected of Chinese civilization years ago. It is near the Odos Desert, near Xi'an. Then, of course, there's Xi'an itself, established in 1100 BC. We've heard of Bactra in Afghanistan, set out the networks for the Silk Road, and Rome was probably the first European city to have networks. In history, we also think of city-states, Athens, Venice, Milan, Florence, and Naples. And near us, in the 15th century, the Malacca Sultanate, which was a city-state. Cities spread power, influence, and civilization values. Today, we talk of global cities. Every city wants to be a global city. Peter Frank Copan, who was a guest at IPS for the Bicentennial Conference in uh, 2019, in fact, wrote this wonderful book, The Silk Roads, said, we think of globalization as a uniquely modern phenomenon. Yet, 2,000 years ago, it was a fact of life that presented opportunities and prompted technological advance. Sorry, I'm a bit long-winded. What sustains a global city and what causes them to be marginalized? Fast forward to present times, we know cities as a unit, as an entity, 
is increasingly an important actor today in politics and has agency. Some cities think they can move faster than the state and are more effective. You would have heard of the book published in 2014 by Benjamin Barber. If mayors ruled the world, dysfunctional nations, rising cities, gives you an idea where the direction of thinking is going among people who work on cities. Now, we will have a conversation today and we will reflect on the cities in past history, draw lessons from them, and we, talk, we will talk about cities today globally and our place, Singapore's place among these cities and the competition from these cities that, and what we can learn from some of these cities. We have with us two personalities who are excellent choices to discuss the topic, cities, civilizations, and geopolitics. Our first panelist needs no introduction, Mr. Giorgio, formerly Singapore's Minister of Communications and the Arts, Minister of Trade and Industry, and Minister of Foreign Affairs. He was three times my boss. <laughs> who is well known as a deep strategic thinker with a historical imagination, and one who is interested in cities, their power, influence, and potential. Our second panelist also needs no introduction. He's Mr. Liu Taika, former master planner of Singapore, and at one time, chief architect and chief executive of HDB. You know, he's also known as Singapore's, was known as Singapore's biggest landlord. He was formerly the chairman of the Centre for Livable Cities and chairman of the National Arts Council. Mr. Liu has done city planning for about 50 cities, including many Chinese cities. So we have these two wonderful personalities to begin a conversation with. Now, you've heard about the format, the drill. You know the IPS drill. Send your questions in. It will appear on my tablet. I hope I can access it. But I will begin by asking our speakers a couple of questions, and then we will throw, they will give their take on these topics, and then you can join in with your questions. Now, I think I'll begin with you, George, uh, first, if you do not mind. Given your interest in cities, history, geopolitics, you know, civilizations, give us your take on the role and impact of cities today in a world that is increasingly state-centric, multipolar, and proliferating groupings. And a second question, do cities generate ideas? And how do they impact on society? That's for you. Uh, Ingrid, I'm so honored to be on your panel. Oh. You have this very charming way of bossing your bosses. <laughs> <laughs> it's been one of the pleasures of my time in government to have worked with you as a, as a wonderful colleague. And I'm, I'm so happy to be on this panel today, uh, sharing uh, the microphone with uh, Liu Taika. Uh, when I was in Staff College a long time ago, I was not, I was about 25 years old. Uh, Taika came to talk about 
urban planning in Singapore. He was running the HDB then. I was so impressed by him as a young captain. He talked about the role of the architect, creating spaces. He, he, it's not for him to say how those spaces should be made yourself. But he was creating spaces which would enable life to grow. No, Taika, you, you inspired me that day, and, and I'm so glad afterwards we became friends. You helped us develop the new SAFTI. Taika and I traveled to visit many academies in the world. And um, in some ways, all of us have been involved in the life of a thriving city. Across time and space, cities have performed different functions, political, administrative, religious, cultural, economic, military. Very often a combination of these functions. I like to see cities as, as nodes in neural networks. A city is not comprehensible in itself. A city can't even feed itself. A city makes sense only in relationship to its connections to a wider network. The richer the network, the more diverse the network, the wider the network, the more opportunities become available in the city. And the more it generates ideas, the more it creates a surplus, the more it's attractive to itinerant talent. And cities have always been the magnet for weird and wonderful people. To have networks, you need connectivity. So for, from ancient times, cities have grown along waterways uh, by the sea. The waterways were the original internet. The moment you reach the shore, you're connected to all shores by boat. Then with road and air communication, other lines of transportation have become more important. And with the information revolution, we are now in the instantaneous contact across the entire world. Not fully. I mean, the, the video and the audio may be perfect. But there's nothing which can provide the full bandwidth of an intimate meal together. When we not only talk to each other, we observe body language, we watch how others affect our interactions. So connectivity is very important. Connectivity can be natural. Connectivity can be created. It's not just physical connectivity. Very often, you may have a door, but the door is blocked to you. You may have an airport, but the airport is not connected to the city you want to go to. You may be on the shore, but there's no boat to take you to your destination. So you need protocols, agreements among cities, between countries to say, look, we open to each other. These are our immigration procedures. These are our quarantine procedures. Today, we may have excellent physical connectivity, but our real connectivity is close to zero because of COVID. We can't even go to Malaysia freely. So the software of connectivity is also very important. Beyond that, cities are built on trust. 
When we travel, there must be a sense of physical safety. When we negotiate, there must be an underlying trust that an agreement can be enforced, that there's legal recourse if there's a dispute, that property is protected, and that there's physical safety, a certain predictability. And this trust is quintessentially human. Trust cannot be codified. In Southeast Asia, we have a hundred ways to say no without saying no. In fact, you should never say no because that's impolite. And the ability to sense nuance is so important. Cities are therefore not just nodes of trust. They are nodes for networks of trust. So there is a Chinese network. During the war in Indochina, you could, you could have an agreement, meet in Singapore, and collect your money in Phnom Penh because of a Teochew network. There's a Wenzhou network. There's a Hakka network. Jews, Parsis, Sindhis, Armenians, Lebanese. You know, Joe Kotkin in his book, Tribes, I think it was written in the early 70s, talked about how the most interesting cities are those which are also nodes for different tribal networks in the world. And we have multiple tribal networks in Singapore. But when you have multiple networks, jig by jiao, there's always conflict. And they must feel at ease here, comfortable here. I once worked with Frank Benjamin to, to create conditions for a Jewish school to be established in Singapore. He told me that more and more Jews were coming to Singapore because of Sands Casino, because of opportunities in Asia. And without a Jewish school, Jewish families cannot take root here. And if Jewish families cannot take root here, the network cannot be strong. Every network needs facilities for its families, for education. It needs cultural amenities. It needs sacred spaces. It's been a pleasure for me to help the Russian Orthodox Church, and Taika got involved in this, to build a Russian Orthodox Church in Singapore because for Russians, the church is a center, not just of their religious life, but of their cultural life. You know, the Russian Foreign Ministry remembers me not for bilateral relations, but for my work in helping to establish this church. When we respect what is important to uh, members of a tribe, they come. And they bring along not just individual brains, doctors, engineers, architects, they bring along networks. And networks very valuable. You have a network, you're a center for multiple networks, the arbitrage opportunities are plentiful. Singapore, at its core, is a center for arbitrage. It was established for arbitrage, but the British is in their company. We are where domains meet. We are where cultures have their cross-currents. So when we deal with a Javanese, we are very polite, very 
subtle. When we deal with an Australian, we have to be forthright or we will not be understood. When we deal with Chinese, well, we become Chinese. When we deal with Americans, we become Americans. This multi-channel capability is part of Singapore. Of course, within Singapore, not everybody is involved in the international network. They're involved in servicing the networks in Singapore. So I cook food, I clean the floor, I do swap tests, I may make furniture, I may be a farm worker, I provide muscle power. Thinking hands, good craftsmanship. In fact, the majority of people living in the city are not involved in the international network. It's a minority. But that minority, they like diversity. But without the people beavering away every day to keep the city clean and functioning, there's no, the, the light will not be lit. In every city, therefore, there is a certain tension between the international element, not all of which is Singaporean, and those who keep the city going. This is the town-gown dichotomy, which, I like, which is a metaphor I like to use. There's a gown which is internationally collect, uh, connected, and there's a town which keeps it going, and the town expects the gown to bless it. Because if you, from the gown, try to boss Lord over me, please leave. I don't need you. But if you are courteous, you bring opportunities, jobs, yes, of course. It's a wonderful symbiotic relationship. In the case of Singapore, there is tension between town and town. There's a feeling that, oh, the foreigners are taking over. Uh, too many have become Singaporeans. They are squeezing into us, we feel uncomfortable. It's not that we are xenophobic. We know that without the international network, Singapore is nothing. But at the same time, we are the masters here. They can't come here and lord it over us. They are guests. If they are good guests, they find that we are splendid hosts. But if they misbehave, well, we should tell them off this tension will grow because the world is changing. I mean, if you use Karl Marx's idea of productive forces, the productive forces are changing because of technology. All networks, all hierarchies are being disintermediated. Social media, the revolution in communication, computational capacity. The old dendritic connections have ossified. Instead, new synaptic links are being formed. We have to capture them. Then Singapore becomes alive, vital, of the future, not just of the past. A city is never static. It, it, it goes through a progression. It grows, it plateaus, it can decline. And therefore, the future, the future life of a city is always a challenge. Singapore has done well. Singapore enjoys certain advantages as a city-state because when, when we are a city-state, we have borders, which means we can control what 
comes in, what goes out. That which we want flow in and out freely. That which we don't want, we keep out. We don't always succeed, but we try. We have a semi-permeable membrane in Singapore, which, in fact, consumes a lot of our effort and energy in many of our ministries. Not just the SCF, it's the police, it's our internal security, it's all border patrols, it's our entire medical services, a whole system of manpower control. It ensures that we have some autonomy. If we are part of a big country, we, we are not masters of our destiny. And sometimes our interests are not aligned with the interests of the larger country. And even when there are opportunities, we can't reach out to grab them. We can as a city-state. But a city-state is vulnerable. We can be eaten up, so we've got to worry about security, which then requires a different network to secure our existence. So this is a very interesting subject, and, and Singapore is a good case study. We make mistakes. We've had some brilliant successes, but the future, the future is always a question mark. Uh, well, George, are you stopping there? Yes. But thank you very much. In a very characteristic George Yeo way, you've lifted the subject from cities as a physical entity, you know, in physical form, to talk of networks and nodes in networks. And you've touched on the people, you know, the sentiments and the possibilities. You've ducked my question, which was the geopolitical one, but don't worry, I'll come back to it later. <laughs> you know, um, Always a good boss. <laughs> the, uh, uh, Taika, I'm going to ask you this question to bring back cities to a more physical, uh, in its physical form. And it's because you are an architect and an urban planner. And could you just tell us, what role does urban planning play in making cities great? And why do some cities fail? Okay. <clears throat> I would like to just uh, go back a little bit on history. See, when we first became independent as a country, if you recall, during that time, the, uh, the, the words that we used that you got reported in a newspaper was the fear of survival. We, because being a tiny city-state with totally no resources, and also at that time we were extremely backward. Some of you may not know, around that time, the world experts consider Singapore more backward than Manila, than Yangon, than Ho Chi Minh City. We were like one of the poorest most backward city. And how do I prove it to you? At that time, we had about 1.65 million people, and three out of four people lived in squatters and slums. Three out of four. So, uh, so this uh, fear of survival was very much in the head of the political leaders. And I must say that the fact that Singapore has become a city as we know today we owe, a lot of people give the credit to me for being the planner and even call me the father of urban planning in Singapore. I totally would refuse to accept that. The, 
the biggest credit must go to the first generation politis politicians because they have this crisis mentality, they have this big fear of uh, survival. So what did they do? First of all, they, they, are, they had to make good policies. Uh, and there, are, there are different ways. Uh, first of all, Singapore, as you know today, is a highly legalistic country because if we lay down our rules and regulations very clearly, very fairly, very easy to read, it will attract people to invest here uh, or even to come and build uh, construction here. So because uh, we take it for granted in Singapore, our laws are very clearly drafted uh, with no ambiguity, but that did not happen by chance. It was done with much care. And second, the first generation political leaders never, in fact, I used to talk to Mr. Lee Kuan Yew when I was in HDB. I had to see him about five or six times a year. Three or four times would be taking him to see the new housing estates. A prime minister would spend three or four times a year to look at housing estates. And then two or three times, I will be in Istana to have a talk with him, give him a briefing and so on. And uh, he would then tell me some of his new policy thinking. And whenever I agreed, I said, yes, I'll do so. Whenever I didn't agree, I said, sorry, I don't agree for the following reasons. 100% of the time, he withdrew immediately without showing any sign of anger to me. So in other words, what I want to say is that our political leaders never, he and all the other, his colleagues, never talked to me once about creating iconic buildings, never once. All they talk about is how can we improve housing? How can we improve traffic flows? How can we improve infrastructure? In other words, the emphasis was on how to improve the livability of people, how to improve the functionality of our city. The, the, and also at the same time, fearing that being in a tropical environment, our hot weather would, would kind of deter me, people from coming here. So what did he do? He pushed for the garden city concept and planted lots of trees. And let me just also emphasize that this, the fact that Singapore became a garden city in a short time was because we were very wise. We only planted trees and grow grass. We very rarely, only very, maybe one in 10,000 time percentage, we put in some flowers. It's just trees and grass because with the limit, really limited money we have, we need, if we plant trees and grow grass, you can spread it across a large area. If you waste your money to produce great pretty gardens, you cannot turn the city into a garden city. So this wise political leadership with uh, the emphasis on the benefit of people, benefit of a city, uh, of the land, actually, it's very, very important. And, that's, and of course, on top of that, we, 
the, the clear rules, government legislation also attract a lot of people to come here to invest because the investors, when they come here, they know exactly how much is the cost of the investment. They can calculate how much the return. So they, they are very happy to come here. So this is the software part. Coupled with that, with that kind of leadership, then my, my role was to produce the hardware to make it work. And uh, to do so, just to tell you, I actually spent, uh, doing in HTB, I spent, in the beginning, the first two or three years, I spent most of the time to try to give the definition of one thing. Because when I came back to Singapore, everybody said, oh, we built new towns. For everyone in HDB, because I was a junior person, everyone said, well, you know, we built new town, then we built neighborhoods. I said, what is a new town? Nobody could tell me. I said, what is a neighborhood? Nobody could tell me. But this is the problem with urban planning is we shout slogans without giving it def definitions and measurements. So I spent the time in the first two years Finally, just to cut a long story short, the, a new town in Singapore would have a population size of around 200,000 people. In order to make all the facilities in the new town as highly self-sufficient as possible. And anyway, I, I went on to do all kinds of other studies. So I treated urban planning not as uh, a kind of sexy expression of drawings, it is actually a science. And this, of course, the combination of the hard software and very down-to-earth hardware together uh, actually has helped Singapore. And, uh, and actually, out of curiosity, I've asked about a dozen foreigners uh, working here. I said, uh, why do you leave your much big, big, bigger country to come to Singapore to work? All of them, without fail, within three seconds to say, because everything works here. Yeah. Okay. So I think, uh, I, I think I'm taking opportunity partly to tell Singaporeans our becoming a world-class city did not happen by pure luck, did not happen by good intention. It's really a lot of hard thinking, a lot of deliverable uh, action that help us to achieve that. And cities fail because? Cities fail because, you see, city as, as a profession as, is really very badly, very poorly understood. In fact, uh, is, in fact uh, my urban plan does not get my clients excited because my plan is scientifically correct, but when you look at my plan, it's not sexy. So if you want to really get your, sign, your, your client excited, it to produce a very sexy drawing with all kinds of beautiful colors, which not only have no meaning, but also tend to vandalize the environment city. But that is a kind of plan that gets people excited. So what happened now is that since people don't understand what is city planning, very few people, and therefore we tend to go for iconic projects, we tend to believe in sexy slogans, 
we tend to talk about future ready. But how can you be future ready if you don't even know what is present? So these are all the problems I were facing. But fortunately, our first generation political leader never once asked me to produce sexy HDB plan, never. You look at my HDB plan, they're dull as hell, but they all work. Actually, I just want to add, what we do care about the word iconic, except that our emphasis was not on iconic architecture or iconic project. Our emphasis was creating an iconic city. city. That's much, much harder, but it will be more durable. Thank you. Uh, George, I'll come to you now. Do you think Singapore will be among the great cities in the region and in the world in the year 2030 or 2040? And uh, what do you think we have to do to keep it uh, that to be uh, great? Uh, what do you think the role of openness you know, you talked of it earlier, town gown. I'm going to take this up. Uh, the attitude to having a new population, is that also important? Attitudes to openness to a great city. Cities derive their energy from the networks they serve. If the networks thrive, cities can potentially thrive. But cities are in competition. So one will thrive better than others. Some will thrive better than others. Some will decline. If we look at the region as a whole, at Asia, the prospects are very bright. China, India, Southeast Asia, more than half the world's population, marching to the open space. No reason why, year by year, as the people get more educated, as infrastructure improves, they will not carry the economic weight in the world. And we are smack right in the middle. And if we position ourselves well, both in terms of connectivity and software, then our prospects are bright. There's no guarantee because we're in competition with others. And there's always the possibility that we may make bad mistakes. For example, the current tension between the US and China will mark this period of history. And it will go on for years to come. Mentally, we should be prepared for easily 10, 20, 30 years of tension between them. Sometimes high tension, sometimes low tension, sometimes even the possibility of skirmishes out at sea, or proxy wars. And we will be caught in between. If we're just a city-state, we'll find ourselves frequently between a rock and a hard place and injured. We need ASEAN. We need the region. We need to be organically reconnected to the region. When the colonial powers were here, we were all connected to the metropolitan powers. Then after we became independent, stripped of our hinterland, we pole vaulted to become a global city. We brought the MNCs here, we became more familiar with America and Japan than we were in Thailand or Laos or, or Indonesia. It's unnatural, it's not organic, and it's not sustainable. We have to go back to the region, which means 
rebooting ourselves in ASEAN. In a sense, COVID has forced us in this direction. The, the period of helter-skelter globalization is past. And everywhere now, if nothing else but for self-preservation, and just in case, we are localizing. And with social distancing and lockdowns, all of us in Singapore are discovering our neighborhoods. Oh, there's a footpath here. Oh, there's a beautiful park. I didn't know there was this restaurant. And neighborhoods have come alive again in Singapore. And we feel happier about it. People are beginning to know one another in the neighborhood, which they should have right from the beginning. This should extend to our neighbors, Malaysia to Indonesia, Laos, Cambodia. This is our region. We are civilizations. We are citizens of ASEAN. Now, if we can play this right, be a capital city of ASEAN, not the capital city, but a capital city, and we have the potential for this because all the other nine countries have sizable communities in Singapore. So we're already linked to all of them. And carefully play the larger forces, the US, China, Europe, Japan, India, others. Don't take size. If anyone pushes us too hard, we'll work within ASEAN to lean a little to the other side. And ASEAN being completely non-threatening to the major powers, ASEAN, if it plays its cards right, has no substitute in the world. We become a convener. Everybody, no, it's common for the big powers to say ASEAN centrality. They don't always believe it. But since we insist on it, they have got to go along. And they like to say, oh, ASEAN the driver's seat. Not because ASEAN is a good driver. If ASEAN wears thick glasses and very often gets lost. But at least ASEAN will not take the car in the wrong direction where they don't want to go. So they say, no, you are the safest for us. So you, you've been a driver's seat. In this way, we turn the weakness into our strength. And we turn the larger forces as an opportunity to drive our own propellers. So this, this you know, the leaders of a city, the city fathers, they've got to see far, they've got to anticipate conflicts, the dangerous possibilities, and say, no, we move in this direction, we service these networks. We are part of many networks, of the American network, of the Chinese network, of the Indian network. And every network tries to capture us, right? Naturally. So we have to be careful. You know, ISD has to be very careful to make sure that we are not captured by anybody. We are friendly to everybody, but we are autonomous. So people say, oh, how can you be uh, having surveillance and restricting freedom and so on? It's absolutely necessary to maintain our autonomy. The more we are alert, the more we are aware, the more we can freely link up. If we are not, if we are sloppy, if we let things happen, very often, very quickly, the gates will have to, will have to be shut. So this is Singapore. It's, it's, it's a high-wire act. And uh, what Taika had just said, what the Founding Fathers did for us, have brought us here. But we need leadership of equal quality to take us into the future. Then it will be the future you talk about.
Thank you, uh, George. I, I like the idea that, you know, the, because I'm giving you a very short time frame, you know, 10 years, 20 years, that, you know, that Singapore should become a great city. It should, you know, aspire to be one of the great capital cities of ASEAN, in ASEAN. Others will want to be a great capital city too. But we, our connection, connectivity, a word you use, uh, so much in your opening remarks. It's very important for us to connect with the region, you know, and this idea of um, not choosing sides, you know. And, uh, and I think um, moving forward, that's a way uh, that's, it's important for us to move in that way and about ASEAN centrality. Now, Taika, I'm going to ask you a question, the same question, you know, do you see Singapore as a one of the greatest uh, cities in the region and the world in 10 to 20 years. And how could we be so? And is openness, I'm interested in this idea, is openness part of it? Okay, first of all, I'd like to say that uh, during our first 50 years, uh, given a very good government in Singapore, we did uh, move ahead very, very fast. Partly because uh, of the, the reason I gave earlier, but also partly because uh, our government had a master plan for every little thing. And also, our first generation government did not solve symptoms, always tackled the causes. And uh, because of that, for example, just now I mentioned that in 1965, three out of four people live in squatters and the slum area. When do you think we got rid of all of them and moved them in public housing? Yeah? By 1985, within, actually it's within 25 years, from 1960 to 85. In 25 years, we don't have homeless people. Try to look for a city anywhere in the world, including the advanced countries whether you can find it or not. You can't. So uh, this is very important. I, I just want to say that for us, to, uh, we, we, we will progress very fast because we have good policy. And that was some of the key characteristics of the policy is that we have a master plan for the whole city, no master plan for this district or that district. We have a master plan to, to solve the causes, not to solve the symptoms. And I really sincerely hope that for Singapore to continue to search ahead, we retain this virtue that our pioneer generation actually uh, left, uh, I mean, demonstrated it works. And actually, the way forward to me, in my view, is going to be tougher. Because during the first 50 years, we moved very fast, but the surrounding countries were still kind of making slow progress. But if you look at the surrounding countries now, their progress is going to be tremendously fast. And of course, all of you know about China is very fast. India also has his uh, strength that, uh, that is kind of world class. And Indonesia is making big differences. And China, India, Indonesia, are among the five biggest countries in the world. 
So tiny Singapore is in the middle of the th three of the largest countries in the world, and they're moving much faster than ever before. So by the fact that we are a world-class city today, giving us a sense of complexity is something that I worry to death because the, the crisis mentality today, to my mind, has to be even more distinct, more sharp than the first 50 years because when the other larger countries are moving very fast, we have a tougher time to keep up with them or to stay ahead of them. And I, I, I'm, I really hope that uh, we should really not feel complacent. We should continue to have what, what actually helped us succeed in the first 50 years of crisis mentality. How do we stay ahead uh, or at least stay on, in pace with our larger neighbors is crisis mentality. And of course, uh, how to do so, I think a lot of lessons can be learned from the first generation. I'm not talking about my planning, I'm talking about policymakers as well, including, uh, as uh, Mr. Yeo said earlier, the very good connectivity. I mean, Singapore has one of the best edge air connection in the world. Singapore is one of the largest uh, seaports in the world. And I'm really hoping that the railway from China through Thailand to Malaysia will become a, a reality in the near future. All these things makes a big difference to us. Now, uh, I'm, it's time to take the questions from the audience. And I, it has been indicated in this pad that the top voted question is a question that, uh, George, you partly touched on already in your answer about Singapore and the connectivity of connections, reconnecting with ASEAN. But the question is phrased this way. How can Singapore as a city-state continue to thrive in the context of conflicting spheres of influence between China and the US? Would we have to compri compromise our sovereignty? And this comes from Jonathan Tan, but uh, many have voted you know, that they would like to hear this question answered. So uh, further elaboration on your earlier idea. The challenge is always not outside, but inside us. Who are we as Singaporeans? Is Singapore just a facility, just a convention center, a good hotel, a restaurant? Or is it something more than that? Does it stand for values which others are happy to associate with? I think Singapore is special because our different communities retain their ancestral cultures and are proud of their ancestral cultures. And we encourage them to be proud of their ancestral cultures. So our diversity is not based upon everybody curbing himself to become a Singaporean, but everybody being bigger in accepting others who are not like themselves. If we can make this happen, that to be Singaporean is to make you bigger than what you were when you were in China or India or Indonesia or Thailand, that when you are here, you're still Thai, 
but you are a Thai who now understands more and accepts better people who are non-Thai. A Chinese who feel for India, an Indian who understands China. Then to be a Singaporean is to become bigger. If to be a Singaporean means that you become smaller, they have got to cut off links, they've got to suppress yourself. Then the only people who become Singaporean are those who think that our passport is more convenient, that the tax regimes are advantageous, and we are a stepping stone. So in the end, the most fundamental question is, who are we as a city? What is our identity? What do we stand for? Yes, we are three-quarter Chinese. If we are just another Chinese city, we are ho-hum. Yes, we speak English. But when we go to the West and they congratulate us that we are very good in our English, we are embarrassed. Because for many of us, English is our first language, not our second language. So we have to think deeply. Who are we? And how do we relate to one another? I'm greatly inspired by the Swiss. They are German, French, Italian, Romansh. They are Protestants and Catholics. But in a crisis, they bunch together. They are compatriots. Of course, they have a long history, over 700 years. But we must constantly try to get there. Then it'd be wonderful. Then everybody will want to be Singaporean. And if first to say, oh, no, sorry, you don't meet our criterion because you are too narrow-minded. You look down on, on, on other Singaporeans. You can't get along with people of other races. You're too bigoted. Sorry. It's okay. You'll be here as a professional. We'll make use of you. But you will not become a citizen. These are questions which we have to wrestle with in Singapore. It goes back to how we raise our children, how we relate to our neighbours. It used to be in the old Malaya that we look forward to each other's festivals. If it's Hari Raya, I know the, 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 the the pineapple tarts will arrive. It's Deepavali, I'm looking forward to my biryani. Chinese New Year, ah, ang paos. Today, the tendency is, uh, this is a time to take a vacation. I, I go somewhere else because this is not my celebration. So only the, the MPs will have to turn up. <laughs> Even when it's the festival, they will go for holidays. So, in our education system, in our cultural development, we have to recenter Singapore yeah. so that Arabs who come, Americans who come, Japanese who come, Chinese who come say, yeah, this place feels like home. And they understand us. They, they look after us. Yeah, I, I think it's okay. I'll bring my family over. And my kids can study here. They'll be safe. And they can learn their own languages and practice their own religions. Mm -hmm. This is a wonderful place. If we can achieve that, all the other things can be done. Well, uh, George, uh, it's very important. Your answer to this question comes back to the identity, who you are. And in fact, I think one of the hardest choices that was made by our political leaders, the first generation in the beginning, was to decide on what would be the identity of Singapore in 1965. Are you going to be a Chinese city or are you going to be a multiracial city? And we chose multiracialism and we expounded on what we meant and we try 
we try to maintain the multiracial character. It's not always easy. The uh, groups will say, you're not citing us enough. You're not, you know, sort of, uh, it's not an equal accommodation of everyone. But I think we've said our identity is multiracial, multilingual, and there's no other place that is really like this, you know. And this so, answers your question, Hingchi, of openness. Yeah. The more comfortable we are with our own identity, yes. the more open we will be. If I know who I am, I can accept you for who you are. If I'm insecure about who I am, <coughs> and you, you are a bit, then, then I begin to worry that you're too much what who you are, because I want you to be like me. So identity is important, and Singapore's identity is complicated because it's made up of constituent identities. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, now, there are questions on climate change too, and maybe I'll start with you, um, Taika. Um, how can cities better prepare for the impact of climate change on their growth and future prosperity, particularly for an island city-state like Singapore? in face of the potential rising sea levels. And the question comes from uh, Wee Kiet Teo. Is it Teo Wee Kiet or Wee Kiet Teo? So. Well, I think climate change, maybe there are two big uh, areas. One is protection of ecology. And uh, tiny Singapore, I think it, it's the fact that we're a lot of people describe Singapore as uh, a city in a garden, and, a, and also a garden within our city. Now, that, uh, this uh, accolade doesn't come easily. That's because we did put a lot of emphasis, again, thanks to our first-generation leaders, to protect our rivers, our lakes, our forests and hills and so on. So, and I, I of course, uh, we know that in a lot of our larger cities, even in the last couple of years, a lot of forests got burned out, and a lot of millions and millions of trees got chopped up. So this is something we have to uh, attend to, and this requires international effort. But Singapore, we've done as good a job as, uh, I would say, a tiny state can do. The second thing about climate change is the burning of fuels. Obviously, there are many aspects to that, like uh, uh, improving the technology, because a lot of fuels is burned up through you know, energy consumption in factories, in buildings, and in cars. Of course, this sort of a technological uh, improvement is on the way, but uh, how much of that can be kind of coordinated and uh, applied on the buildings? Because uh, the skill of creating zero energy building is already there. But, uh, and Singapore has done pretty well in our so-called green mark system, but it's still not reaching the zero energy uh, building. It was just on the way, and I'm hoping that we'll continue to proceed. And of course, you have this uh, um, improved version of a low 
fuel consumption of cars, all these things are important. But as a city planner, I also want to say that if we plan the city well and minimize the dependency on public transportation or cars, it also helps. Uh, for example, you know, we actually distribute our urban facilities from a city to new towns to neighborhoods. So if you live in a neighborhood, and we plan for a neighborhood of walking distance of around five to 600 meters, you can actually walk. So if you want the basic daily needs, you don't even need to use a bicycle. You can just walk. And that saves a lot of energy. But, but this thing, I would say I've been kind of paying attention to see whether anyone else in the world talks about this. I haven't heard a single one. But I want to say this is a, uh, something that we should pay attention to. And the other thing is like Singapore, uh, being a very highly high-density city, and yet we don't have severe traffic jam. That's also because of good planning. Severe traffic jam not only creates inconvenience, but also burn up energy when you move the traffic slowly. And why? It's because we plan the city very carefully. And one of the key factors is we actually have a <coughs> an excellent train and bus system. And that, again, of course, uh, we have to thank the first-generation politician for pushing this very hard. So uh, <coughs> I would say there are solutions, but it's a question of us identifying the, the, <coughs> the issues that we need to tackle and, and turn the slogan into action. <coughs> Yeah. Thank you, um, Tiger. Now, the second uh, top <coughs> question is on the thriving of Singapore as a city-state. It's from Matthew Ting, and uh, several people have voted for an answer to his question. And the question is on competitiveness. Many cities focus on certain areas, for instance, to be a cultural hub, financial hub, transport hub. As a city-state, what does Singapore need to be? Maybe all or none of the above. And where should it focus on to be globally competitive? George, you were Minister of Trade and Industry. Oh, uh, the heart of Singapore's economy is arbitrage. Uh, we can never be the best chemist or the best manufacturer are the best accountant in the world. But we, we are where domains intersect. And where domains intersect, there's always a lot of energy between high and low, between plus and minus, between positive and negative. We are part of China, we are part of Indonesia, we are part of India, we are part of the West. All the domains intersect here. Our standards are accepted by all of them. When I was health minister, we found that Lingzhi products from Japan were all past our test. From China, many contain heavy metal. So we destroyed entire batches. 
After a while, importers made sure that their linkages were clean that came to Singapore. We were not vouching for efficacy, just for heavy metal contamination. And I discovered to my delight that Chinese tourists, when they came to Singapore, would buy herbs from China in Singapore because they knew that Singapore maintained higher standards than China. Anthony Salim once told me that when his flour is produced in Singapore, they fetch a higher value than the flour he produces in Indonesia because it's made in Singapore. So the maintenance of standards yes. puts us in a different position. People trust us. And after a while, the role of a hub. I want to buy cheap, I go to Singapore. I want to sell dear, I go to Singapore. I want to travel faster, I go through Singapore. I want to be healthier, I go through Singapore. I want to be better educated, I go through Singapore. Not that we are the best in originating everything. No, but we know how to source, how to unbundle and rebundle and repackage so that it's worth your while and I get a little margin for ourselves. So our economic competitiveness relies upon our ability to understand different markets, different domains, and no one can touch us. Hong Kong could, but Hong Kong now, the national security law, we have to go through a period of difficulty. I'm very optimistic for Hong Kong, but it will take time. But for the next 10 years, Singapore has no competitor in this space within a thousand miles. Thank you, uh, George. I hope Matthew is uh, satisfied with that answer. Um, now, there is a question on food, and maybe this is something which, which we don't touch on uh, very much. So the question comes from Anonymous. Uh, Mr. George, you mentioned that cities are often not self-sustainable, yet in the new world, there may be no choice. This may not be a choice for us. What are the speaker's thoughts, that includes you, Taika, on our push for a more self-sustaining food supply program and how city planning can uh, enable this? That's really not within my expertise. No, I, I would yeah. say, but I, reading newspaper, I understand that our government is trying to use vertical farming to hopefully produce 30% of the vegetable we need. I think that's really a good move. And I, my understanding is that we do have a kind of grain storage system to, just for emergency. But I think for us to be totally food sustainable, yeah. I think it's very, very difficult. Yeah. But it's not within my area of expertise. George? I fully agree with Taika. We must be realistic. There's a complex division of labor in the world. We cannot hope to be self-sustaining in everything. And even if we produce some vegetables here, we should not eat all vegetables which are Singapore-grown because we won't get the diversity that we need. And uh, hydroponics create hydroponic vegetables. They are not organic vegetables. So let, let's have a sense of proportion. What is good is Singaporeans becoming a part of a global environmental movement, which includes concern about climate change, although there are aspects of climate change which are controversial. I mean, COVID has reminded us that, that we are human, that we are not that great, you know. 
little virus can cripple the world. A little virus, a little strand of mRNA can cripple the world. It's a reminder to us that we're not that great and that we have to respect nature of, of which we are only a part. And living as part of nature cannot be imposed by rules, by social pressure. It has to come from inside. In what we do every day, our attitudes towards waste, towards plastic, towards one another, towards living things. I mean, do we say, oh, this bird upsets me, let's kill it, let's poison it. No? This arrogance, and it's not good for us. And it's also good that it's becoming a global trend. For many years, we worried that whatever we do in Singapore, the waters remain polluted, the air gets smoky from time to time, the food we import may be contaminated. So it's good that this becomes a global movement, then the air will be cleaner, the water will be cleaner. Because we share the same air, we share the same water, plants and vegetables don't carry passports, I think that's good for us. So it's important that we are part of this movement. It's become a bit of a religion, which, which worries me. I think we should be scientific, practical, and have a sense of proportion. Good to grow some vegetables, good to tend some plants because growing plants is a meditation. I think it improves your soul. But don't think we can be self-sufficient. Of course, the fruits you grow always taste sweeter. They're more delicious, but you cannot depend on yourself for all the fruits that you want to eat. The, uh, now, I'm going to ask a question uh, myself before I take an uh, audience question. It's on urban diplomacy. You know, uh, We know in past history, uh, George and you follow this, you know, that uh, the, there were many military alliances and mutual assistance between cities. And you have the Hanseatic League, the, Lombard League and cities helped each other, many in Europe, you know. In today's world, we have something called C40. It is an alliance of cities which want to work together, mayors in cities, so that, that they can have an impact, their voice can be heard in the climate change negotiations. And they believe, they feel the sense of urgency more than some of the leaders in the capital, and they can push ahead. Now. Do you see uh, city diplomacy, urban diplomacy, having a real place, you know, and being able to push for things much faster and more effectively than sovereign states? And cities can help cities. And I'll come to you too, Kitaiko. Uh, I'll leave it to you too. <laughs> the Westphalian system of nation states is not going to go away for a long time. So cities have got to abide by national policies. And therefore, there's a limit to which Singapore's city-state can develop autonomous relationships with cities which are part of larger countries. But beneath the nation-state, there are many things that we can do together to mutual benefit. And this we should do. We can learn from one another. We can help one another. Uh, when I was trade minister, uh, I work for closer links with Johor, but very conscious that Kuala Lumpur must bless our efforts. The governors of Sumatra, of the provinces of Sumatra, they met regularly 
I will take skin set and you, you include Singapore. Treat Singapore as a province of Sumatra. They laugh because they weren't sure whether I was serious or just <laughs> joking, you know. I said, no, no, no. We, look at the map. We are part of Real Sumatra. I mentioned this to the Indonesian trade minister. So I got her blessing. And they invited me. Every time they had a meeting, they meet among themselves. Then they'll have a subsequent meeting plus one in Singapore. And so we developed relationships with Jambi, with Bengkulu, with, uh, with uh, 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 South Sumatra, North Sumatra, and, and so on. And this helped secure our supplies. We had a group which um, cooperated on firefighting hmm. in Jambi. The governor used to help his father supply rubber to a Mr. Sim at Singapore River. So he had feelings for Singapore. We should always build up these links with our neighbours, with other cities. And the little things we can do with one another, it will enrich Singapore, it will enrich them. And we create a psychology where your welfare is also my welfare. When your forests burn, I get a smoke. When my waters are polluted, you are affected. We look after each other's back, and that's good. But we have to work within the Westphalian state system. The, um, right. I think I'm going to give a question that will be for um, Taika. Um, are we becoming too overcrowded? Nope. Is, are we becoming too overcrowded? This is anonymous, yeah? Is reclaiming the correct way to be given the whole rhetoric about sustainability? It is often tough to balance between nature and development. For instance, the Dover project. Okay, uh, in terms of reclamation, I feel that Singapore has already reached the saturation point because we want to stay as one of the largest seaports in the world. And therefore, on the one hand, we're short of land, but we're also very, very short of uh, sea space. In fact, when I was in the government, I spent about nine months negotiating with the Port Authority on the extent to which we can reclaim land. But uh, in recent years, I think we tend to reclaim even more, which I can understand that because if we know how to berth our ships in a more efficient way, we can reduce the sea space. But there's a limit to that. So we should not count on reclamation uh, to accommodate the larger population. That's uh, on reclamation. But on the other hand, in my view, uh, no government can control population growth. No government. Because if your economy grows very well, then it would uh, create a lot of jobs. When you create a lot of jobs, you need population to fill up the jobs. And uh, even, say, in China, they have this uh, called the, uh, the registration system. You know, you, you, if you want to move to a city, a hukou system. And uh, despite that system, you can see that 
Shanghai, Beijing, and so they're just growing bigger and bigger and bigger. Because if the economy is thriving, you need people to move in. And personally, for Singapore, uh, just now I mentioned that with our surrounding countries moving faster, progressing faster economically than we experienced in the past, past half century, I feel that we must be prepared for possibly faster economic growth to stand tall among them. And to do so, we must accept population growth. And partly because of that, uh, a few years ago, I said, that let's plan for 10 million people. Now, that is not really a ridiculous number because 1960, we had 1.6 million. Around uh, recently, we have 5.8 million or 5.7, let's say 5.8. The increase in 55 years is 4.2 million. What is 10 million? 10 million is just add another 4.2. Now, how long would you want Singapore to, to, to stay as a sovereign, sovereign state? Okay, uh, another 4.2 may, if, if the growth rate is half of what it used to be, it will last for 100 years. If it's a quarter of what it used to be, it will last for 150 years. It's not excessive. But if we plan now, we can then kind of make sure we, had, we can at least accommodate uh, 10 million people. And personally, I, I, I make this suggestion with a crisis mentality. And I really hope, but uh, this has been raised for several years, and I have not got a single a clear response from the government. Actually, there has been a response. There was a debate on population, and we put aside the 10 million population No, they, they, they've talked about a lot of population, yeah. but they did not give a position on the 10 million. And uh, I think because of the pandemic, uh, Taika, our population has shrunk by 200,000, from 5.6 million last pre-pandemic last year. I think this year is 5.4. So, you know, we've lost population because uh, people have gone home, you know, and some workers have gone home too. But um, this remains a topic that is discussed. But I, I think Prime Minister's speech in Parliament, in fact, you know, uh, when he summed up the debate, he said that uh, they were going to try to keep the population, and I'm trying to remember now, between, I thought it was uh, six point something, but that was a higher limit, but it was around five point something, 6.9 was it? You know, that, yeah, was a higher, 9, yeah. that was a higher limit. So, um, right. Anyway, I, I don't want to raise this issue because I've said my piece and if it's not, not accepted, it's not my, because I'm no longer in a government, I'm no longer responsible for the future of Singapore. Mm -hmm. I have some sympathy for Taika's view that we should plan for more rather than for fewer. Because if you plan for more, and we don't reach that number, then Singapore will be very spacious. Whereas if we plan for fewer, and because of the nature of things, not everything's within our control, the population grows more than we anticipated, 
and will be very crowded. I've long been in favor of sinking multi-story car parks in HDB estates. They affect the quality of life in HDB estates. It's expensive to sink car parks. But if you were commercial development, the car park would be sunk, sunken. Underground car park. Underground car park. And today, engineering materials are stronger. It's easier to achieve ventilation. We can pipe in sunlight. We can make underground car parks much less uncomfortable. And then keep surface areas open. We have so few soccer pitches in Singapore. It's not healthy for our kids. They want badminton courts now. That too. <laughs> so what can be sunken should be sunken. Yeah. And plan for more. We don't reach it, that's fine. We are giving future generations options. But we don't plan for it now when the time comes and they have to retrofit. The cost will be prohibitive. Take, say, for instance, sunken car parks. When you build a new HDB estate, it costs you nothing to sink car parks. But if you retrofit car parks in existing HDB estates, it costs a fortune. So the way the planner thinks is very important. If I say, look, allow for the possibility of more population, they will do many little things, which will create options for us in the future. The idea of living underground is already begun. I mean, our MRT, you know, station, we're there. And you have uh, shopping areas, shopping facilities, and MRT, um, you know, uh, stations. And I think we're also talking of, uh, we do keep ammunition, right, buried underground. So I think we've started that process. And there are some engineers in some universities that are already designing this, you know. No, technology has made many new yes, things possible. Yes, this is possible, right. The, um, now, I think we have really just um, time for one more question. Uh, we finish at 4.30, I think. So I'm going to pick a question from, which is totally really different. And this is someone called Lim Ziming, who has put forth this question. Which slogans of today would benefit Singapore the most if they were to be more clearly defined? You know, we went, to, I guess we grew up at a time when there were always slogans and movements, and there was, you know, like, uh, you can say, uh, you know, like, speak uh, Mandarin, less dialect, you know? Uh, we, we had our uh, uh, campaigns and there were slogans. Uh, and if we were to design one for Singapore now, what would be appropriate and galvanizing? They are not propagandists, you know. It, it may be easier to find a name for the new, for the baby panda, you know. <laughs> Yes, I guess it's hard to just pluck slogans out from the air, and it depends on what you consider to be the area that is important for us to deal with, you know. So um, the... Uh, I think it's a question which answer deserves more thought yeah. than a casual throwaway. Yeah. That what is it that will motivate Singapore? 
Singaporeans in the next decade or two, you know, because um, what fires the imagination now? You know, we seem to have been through all, and uh, there's a sense of, uh, you know, Singaporeans are sophisticated. They've seen a lot of things. We've been through a lot. They've enjoyed success. We've enjoyed also some setbacks, and, um, you know, we've seen a lot of things. We need something inspiring, and we've got to reach out for that particular slogan. Now, maybe I want to add that uh, yes. the, the current slogan, I'm, I'm not keeping track very much, but uh, for Singapore to move from a backward city to a modern city, a few slogans were very important. One was in search of excellence. Mm -hmm. In other words, we don't settle for second best or third best. We settle for the best, in search of best. Of course, now you don't hear about this, so I want to remind young Singaporeans, this was on the, on the lips of almost every minister in those days. Second is uh, uh, breaking the backbone of housing shortage. Okay, that's how we actually push ourselves so hard to build public housing. And third is home ownership for all, home ownership for all, and we actually achieved that. So slogans, it depends on the slogan. Uh, the slogan is actual, actually action-oriented, and it's a city-wide uh, concept. It can be useful. And also, uh, we another slogan is uh, uh, this... Uh, whole of government effort, okay? But I want to say that it was whole of government effort to collaborate, not whole of government effort to build silo. There's a difference. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The, uh, no, you are right. And what you've touched on, uh, Taika, seems to me, is that at particular times in our history, certain goals are very clear, and they are goals and objectives that the government, the people all wanted to achieve, you know. Housing, for instance, eh, is one very clear one. To achieve excellence when you are struggling to establish yourself. But today, as Singapore has become more affluent, more developed, I think interests are getting more diverse. The population has diverse interests. And to find a slogan that appeals to every segment is much harder. And that's why governance is much more challenging. And that's why I ask the question, what makes for great cities? Why do cities fail? Where does, what is the role of governance in making cities work? And I think the answer is obvious. It's central to the making of you know, great cities, apart from everything that we've talked about. You know. Now, I would think I'm going to bring this discussion to a close. You know. We've had a full um, exposure and discussion for uh, one and a half hours. And uh, it's been a rich discussion. Uh, people aren't so interested in history, I notice. The questions are all about Singapore today. And there are many questions about the survival of Singapore, what will make Singapore thrive, what must we do to be uh, uh, competitive. There are also specific questions, you know, about designing of neighborhoods, etc. You know, so there are uh, the awareness of being, you know, sort of how do we survive? You know, and the other is how do we make a good home? How
how do we design our home, food security, and so on. And I think um, this really sums up the sort of interest that makes Singaporeans, I think, sensible and really uh, thoughtful citizens of uh, the city-state. And you know, they don't ask, they ask questions that can be, that you can reach out for answers. It's not the impossible. If we were all looking for an impossible dream, it, you know, we, we won't achieve very much. But we have to have dreams, and as a city, and a city-state, we must continue to have dreams. And George and Taika have, in fact, reminded us of that. They come from different generations, you know. And George, you're a different generation, you know, from Taika and me. You know, and Taika, you're a little ahead <laughs> of me, but, you know. But we are different generations of Singaporeans all wanting this city-state to thrive and survive. And uh, with you, with the audience, I think with all of us thinking through what we need for the city to maintain itself and to be cosmopolitan, to be also concerned with ourselves, our own identity, our local aspects, I think we will be able to find the way. Thank you. And we've left geopolitics sort of a little, it's there, but we didn't go into it as much. But I think this shows that the interest is really in trying to find a way for us, ourselves, as a city and the management of a city. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you, Ambassador Chan, Mr. Yo, and Dr. Liu. Ladies and gentlemen, we have now come to the end of the pre-conference session. On behalf of IPS, I would like to extend my sincere thanks to all the speakers and moderators for their time today. Thank you also to the audience for your active participation in the discussions. I hope that these are conversations we will all continue having after today. Just a reminder that this conference has been recorded and will be available on this platform for two weeks. The next session will be on 13 January at 9 a.m. with Minister Ong Yi Kang. Thank you very much again for joining us today and have a good afternoon. <laughs>